And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, I have quite the radio survivor joining me. He is the host of Triple M Afternoons and a true radio legend. It is <laughs> Ugly Phil O'Neill. Hello. Hey, Rachel, we were talking about playing Survivor by Eye of the Tiger. Yes. As well. <laughs> if I could afford the rights to the music, yeah. I would put it under this podcast, but I think for now we'll have silence. Instead, we'll have Loser by Beck. All right, here it is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you. I actually referred to you in a previous podcast with Paul Murray because we were talking about how bizarre it is when you get into this business and you start to work with people who you watched or listened to when you were younger. And I mentioned that I used to listen to you on the Hot 30 when I was 16 in the shower. Yeah. yeah. Because that's where I listened. Thanks for the extra little bit of uh, context (laughs) there too, by the way. That's where I used to listen to the show. Uh, And in the ensuing years when we have – from time to time discuss the possibility of working together, I have had that moment where I thought, goodness gracious, who knew that back when I was 16 that we'd be sitting down eye to eye thinking about working together. But one of the great things about you and your career is that you have stood the test of time. How long have you been working in the business now? 37 years Holy. this year. 37 years in October. That is yeah. a long time. That's it. Old Man River. Old Man River, mm. all right. Yeah. Uh, and for a lot of people, that's really tough to have a, a career that spans that many decades. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that have no idea how you came to be and how you got to where you are. Yeah. So let's just start at the like how you got into radio to begin with. What was your very first sort of foray into that? Okay. When I left school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I loved the radio, but I didn't really, it didn't really click until, and I'm a huge believer in, uh, in fate. Um, and I opened up the what to do after you've left school manual they gave you back at CES back in the days, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know if people remember CES. And it opened up on Radio Announcer. That went, was in the book yeah, as an option? Yeah, I know, yeah. And it still paid back in those days too, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, three and sixpence. And, um, and I went, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Because I kind of, I really, I, I liked the idea of being a disc jockey, but it never really kind of clicked. But from that moment on, and I think I was just before I turned 16, I went, that's what I want to do. So for you, was it a pull to the music side of things as opposed to the performance side of things? I liked the idea, the concept of the whole thing because I used to listen to the radio and I used to tape the songs off the radio and I just loved the idea of the disc jockey in between, you know, Mm. um, talking about music and because I was – a pretty lonely kid. I didn't have many friends um, because of, you know, moving around the world and stuff with my parents. So it seemed that the disc jockey lifestyle was really glamorous. And, you know, I really bought into the fact that, oh, it's a celebrity who gets to go around town in a limousine and, you know, gets to VIP access to, you know, nightclubs. But, I mean, that that wasn't the driving force behind it. I also was just, I just like the idea of being able to have someone to talk to. Yeah, totally. So what in those early years for you, what what were you like as a kid? Were you moving around a lot because your parents of their work or because of my dad's work so I lived all over the world so you know by the time I you know when I got to 15 I'd been in a hundred different schools so it was you know setting yeah setting the pathway for radio you know moving every 10 minutes 
Um, and yeah, so I was pretty isolated as a kid, uh, and I remember having a CB radio, and I loved the experience of being able to talk and loads and loads of people hearing me, which would have been an influencing factor as well. So you were saying that you kind of looked after you finished school at the at that as an option, but while you had a connection to the radio when you were younger, did you think about it as a career option at no. that age, or it wasn't until you finished school? Yeah, no, not at all. I was working as a car detailer. Um, I worked in a supermarket collecting shopping trolleys, which was, you know, a great job. That lasted about, you know, seven months or something like mm. that. Worked in a bottle shop. Uh, but I realized that it was going nowhere. Not that I thought that this particular career was actually going to get anywhere. But, and even my dad said to me, look, this is just a pie in the sky. It's not going to go anywhere. And I said, mm. no, Dad, I'm going to be a DJ. I'm going to be on the wireless. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, so I just, I, there was a radio station. This was in Perth called uh, 6 p.m., as it was then, then PMFM, and I used to just ring up all the disc jockeys on the air all the time and hassle the shit out of them. Did you? You know, and they used to put me on hold for an hour, and I'd still be there when they'd come back in an hour. Oh, yeah, I'm still here, you know, and sometimes from phone boxes in the street because, you know, I just so desperately wanted to be a disc jockey by that stage. So were you ringing them to get on the air or were you ringing them just to ask them, can I come in, can I sit yeah, in the anything. studio? Yeah, anything, yeah, yeah, just to have some kind of connection, you know, sort of vicariously be involved in radio through just talking to the guy on the air. And, you know, as my fascination with radio grew, these guys became sort of demigods to me, you know. Yeah. Like I just, being able to talk to your favourite, you know, DJ, who was a mid-dawner at the time. And one of the guys was actually doing a radio course, one of the mid-dawners there. Um, so I had my big ghetto blaster and I jumped on the train and I went over to his place and, you know, played him my air checks. <laughs> Where had you recorded your air on, checks? On my cassettes, you know. on the Just on the, talking yeah, into yeah, the yeah, little yeah, microphone yeah, yeah, yeah. that used to be on those ghetto yeah, blasters. That was, that was my thing, you know. Uh, it's ten past five. The eye in the sky will go out to you and find out the traffic, you know. <laughs> So was this? Did this guy that was doing mid dawn said you just built up a relationship yeah, by yeah. nagging? Yeah, and and he he sort of had a proxy radio school, so he let me go into six pm and showed me how to queue up a few records and stuff like that. And you know, uh, f- from that moment on, when I had gone into six pm to queue up a few records, I was a fully fledged disc jockey. You know, in your own mind, in or? my own mind, yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. I would apply for back in the days when B and T magazine used to come out, which was you know like a jocks journal. And they had jobs in the back, and I'd apply for every job that was going. And then if I didn't get the job, I'd ring up the program director and ask how the guy who got the job was going. You know, really? like oh yeah, I know it's just embarrassing to think about it now. But I'd be ringing up, going, "Hi, oh, it's Phil here. How's that new guy going? You know, <laughs> just checking up on him." Uh, it's like, you, 16 years of age. But surely, are you still like that in some ways? Yeah. Because to have lasted for this long in the business, you you have to have a bit of that about you, I think. You've got to have self-belief, I think. But you've got to have, most importantly, a passion to do it. Because the minute that passion dies, you know, you've got that guy that you've seen that walks around the radio station corridors that essentially is a cancer and he just brings the dread with him. Mm. And, you know, you don't want that. Mm. Which I became much later down the track yeah. <laughs> do you because you have shipped around a lot yeah. and that is a big part of the business for sure but yeah. even in the later years you've always seemed to be totally fine with moving and I always found that very very difficult yeah but I guess now knowing about you as a kid that's all I knew it's just sort of yeah. natural for you but I there also suppose. I think it gets a stage where you go Christ I don't want to pack up my life anymore you know it's a sort of fine line between being bohemian and being a journeyman. Yeah. And that fine line is something you don't want to cross. Are you at that point now where you think, I'm, I'm pretty much done oh, with the Oh, you know, I'm 54 now. You mm. know, at what stage do you go, okay, I'm going to put my rucksack on my back again and, 
Yeah. Know, head out into the wide world. It's a lot more fun when you were 20 than when you get into your 50s. Yeah, definitely. So in those early days, you you went to this guy's radio school. Mm, um, I went to his house. That was his radio school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his really wife used to put like a cup of tea on the table and I'd get my ghetto blaster out there and I'd play my latest attempt. Did you have to pay him or was he just doing no, it out of the just goodness doing it, of yeah, his heart? Yeah, because uh, he could see in me the fact that there was this guy who was just I was so keen to be a disc jockey. And so how did it change from – well, like, where was your first actual gig? So I didn't – nothing eventuated from that and I ran out of people to ring up and hassle. And my parents moved again and we were living in Kempsey um, and I'd sent a letter to the program director in Port Hedland at 6NW Port mm-hmm. Hedland, which is geographically – you know, you couldn't get further apart. And he said, look, I've got one shift a week, pays $5 an hour, uh, Sunday night, it's yours if you want it. And I went, great, yeah. So I jumped on a bus, which was from, and I was 17 at the time, uh, and it was from Kempsey down via Melbourne through Adelaide across the Nullarbor to Perth and then from Perth to Port Hedland, about another 24 hours or something. Eventually got to Port Hedland and then found out when I got there that the radio station was in South Hedland, which is uh, about another hour outside of Port Hedland. Uh, and when I got there with my suitcase, they didn't actually have an accom- uh, any accommodation because it was a mining town. So I went to the local caravan park and they had a spare caravan. So I I managed to stay in that, you know. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. And I worked one shift a week, three hours a week, so that was $15 before tax. I think my rent was 60 or $70 a week. And, you know, I worked in supermarkets after hours, shop, you know, stacking shelves in order to just pay the rent. I didn't eat. I didn't eat for about six months. I mean, yeah. What did your parents think when you decided to go that far away? Finally gone. (laughs) Were Were they proud of you for doing that or were they sort of like, what are you doing? I think parents after a while have to relinquish responsibility for their 17-year-old yeah. son. Yeah, you know? that's true. That's so, true. And I never rang and asked for money. You know? Once you get something in your head and it's pretty clear that you're somebody who once you saw that that's what you want to do, yeah. there was no talking that's you right. out of it. And I'm still that way now. Yeah. Um, so I bullshitted my way into this radio station uh, and then on the Sunday night of the first show, I remember sitting at the desk and going, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, you were sitting behind the panel and yeah, you'd never panelled never before? never panelled before. I told them I knew how to do everything because I was so bolshy and, you know, 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I was like, wow, I can do anything. I can do anything you want. Yeah. So, so what was that first shift like? A nightmare. It was. <laughs> I remember just thinking the first record had f- started to fade out and these were discs back in the day. Yeah. And the guy before me said, all right, see you. Are you all right? You okay? No, I'm fine. I know everything. Shit. You know, I'm only 17. So the uh, record faded out and I was looking at the desk going, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I had to panel a religious show because I had all of these pre-recorded shows. I was on from six to nine and everything was on tape. And because I had never threaded up a tape machine before, I had no idea how to thread a tape machine. I managed to get it on, but then I'd thread it wrong so it wouldn't rewind. So I was like whacking it with my hands, trying desperately to rewind it so I could take it off and get the next one on. And then I'd done, the final show was the religious show, my first record on the air. And this was just coincidental. Um, and I just grabbed, you know, a record. It was Highway to Hell, mm. straight out of the religious shows. <laughs> you know, and I was on the air, first record ever, Highway to Hell, ACDC. <laughs> I don't know that I would have ever had the balls 
to go into a studio and do that. I think when you believe something so much and you want something so much, you can do anything. Yeah. Were you a sort of, when you were a kid, were you in a, a kind of big imagination type person? Yeah, like, did I had you... to be, yeah, because I didn't have many friends. I had hardly any friends, so I had li- lived in my own little world. I, ge- I guess in some ways you can create, in, when you're in that situation, a narrative that is so strong yeah. and built over so many years mm. that you you can sit down behind a desk and go, this is going to work out mm. no matter what. Yeah, and, and along the way, you know, actualities and realisations hit you. I mean, I went from there to um, between Northam and Bridgetown, a place called Manjumup, which was essentially a post office and the radio station. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you got to live at the radio station and not pay rent in order for you to actually work from nine in the morning till nine at night. Oh, you wow. Know? And I did advertising logs, I wrote ads, I produced ads, I went on the air, you know, for $75 a week before tax. Yeah, right. and, You know, it was the greatest thing ever. It was a full-time job. And then I went from there to Kuma... No, I went from there to Northam, where there were three jocks and a receptionist. So this was oh, that's big, big time. time. Oh, mm. my Lord. And then from there to Cooma and there to Toowoomba, and from there to Brisbane, which was my first big-time radio job at Radio 10 at the time. Uh, Each of those 21. jobs were those ones you had applied for? Had you been heard of and been contacted? How did those yeah, jobs I was, work? I was lucky. There's a, as you know, in radio, there's a, some guys who never actually get out of the circuit of just being the guys that apply for everything. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there would be back in the days when the PD would keep your tape on file. Uh, and that was the old cliche. There'd be one guy whose tape was always on file, you know. And I was very close <laughs> to being that guy, but I managed to bullshit my way into Radio Ten in Brisbane. And you know, like I was again twenty at that time, and it was my first big time thing. But you know, I talk about react uh, sort of actualities of believing that you're fantastic, and that you know you're the god's gift to radio. And then I'd sent a tape to Two SM to Ian Grace. And I went down to, to SM to see him. He said, yeah, he said, you're pretty good, but, you know, that lisp is going to be a problem. And I'm like, what is? <laughs> and it's like, oh, you, I do have a lisp. Yeah, right. You know, so I got that far with this yeah, yeah, quite yeah. bad speech pediment, impediment and had to go and do speech therapy there. But I had such self-belief that I was going to be a big radio star. So yeah. you've had you've been to speech therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, I don't notice you have a lisp now. No, occasionally, you know. I From time to time. But was it bad? Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, I've got a high-pitched voice for ages. And I tried to put it on, so I put it on, because all the disc jockeys back then had proper radio voice. <laughs> but I hadn't realised that until Gracie said, mate, there's a bit of a lisp there. How long did it take you in speech therapy oh, to get rid of it? Six months, I think. That's I mean, that's commitment to the cause. Oh, every, well, you've got to be. You know, you've got to be committed in order to have a career, a mm. long, especially a longer career. You've mm. got to deal with a great deal of adversity. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, meanwhile, if you can hear the sounds of the city, we are in the towering inferno of rock that is Triple M, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, yeah. currently in the corner studio. Uh, of the Tower of Power. Of the Tower yeah, of Power. 24 floors up, <laughs> pumping 50,000. I, I love all those radio cliches. I know, right? You, you've been through them all. Oh, yeah. So in that first gig in... In Brisbane, how how long had you been doing radio when you got to Brizzy? So I started when I was 17. Uh, I was about 20 by that stage. And what was that gig? Uh, mid-dawns. Oh, I remember mid-dawns. Roger Green ringing me up while I was at 4GR Toowoomba and saying, mate, how would you like to come and do six mid-dawns a week? And I'm like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm on my way. Get me on the yeah, cheaper yeah. version of the Greyhound yeah, bus. I'll yeah, be yeah, yeah. No, I think I had a car by that stage. <laughs> oh, Toronto, yeah. So, oh, goodness. Yeah. Things were looking yeah, yeah, no, up. Yeah. Isn't that interesting now? Because uh, a lot of us in the business started out in mid-dawns. Mm. And 
they don't really exist anymore because no. everything's automation. Yeah. I mean, that's where you kind of were able to make all your mistakes oh, and yeah. stuff up and, and you learned how to work with callers because you had the kookiest, weirdest callers yeah. at 2.30 in the morning ringing you up. So when so you're 20. What year is this when you're? 83. 83. Yeah, 20, 21 and 83. So you've really gone through right through the glory days yeah. of radio when yeah. well no unfortunately not quite because i think about this all the time the 70s sorry to interrupt you there, mm, no, the please. 70s was i think would have been the the halcyon days do you think yeah when you know 3xy and 2sm and you know they had like fleetwood mac releasing the rumors album and you know the eagles and stuff like that i think they probably would have been the carefree days of radio. I think as you started getting into the 80s, things became a little bit more corporate than then into the 90s. And as you Isn't continue. that interesting? Maybe everybody who, who is in the present thinks that the past was better, oh, you know, because yeah. everybody gets nostalgic. But I always thought, because I sort of only got into radio around 2001, and everybody always talked about the late 80s, early 90s when radio was king and it was all the parties and the rock stars yeah. and the money was flowing and all of that kind of stuff. And then everybody says, oh, now it's just so corporate. But it's interesting that you say, oh, I think the 70s would have been yeah, like that yeah, and the 80s were corporate. Yeah, well, the 80s, I mean, I had a really great time in the 90s as well. But the thing about radio is, like everything, you've got to adapt because things evolve mm. and they're not going back to the way they were. You know, and you see the radio forums where you've got these radio guys who you know, are bitter and angry because back in my day, well, that's cool and that's true, but you've got to adapt mm. if you want to continue working in not just this industry, but any industry. Mm. Because if you don't adapt, it's, it's adapt or die, yeah. really. Has that adaptation, that idea of ad- adapting been something that you embraced very early or is it something as the later years have gone on that you've tried to do or? Well, I didn't really, I wasn't a fan of a adapting to technology when they decided to you know phase out carts and bring in computers i was oh no i'm gonna still use my carts you know (laughs) and then as i learned about the computers and how much more sort of beneficial that was to a broadcaster i thought that's fantastic but also i think you get to a stage where you know being i don't know if this is a 50s thing or a late 40s where you go you know what i'm not really interested in snapchat Mm-hmm. And, you know Instagram, and I don't really care about the Ariana Grande single. You know, it's a great thing about the rock format is you can still live on the heritage of rock. Yeah, you know? that's true. Um, that's true. There comes a stage where you also I don't really want to adapt to that world because it really has nothing for me. I mean, I, I could if I had to, but I'm a firm believer when it comes to social media. It it for me is something that is a necessary but uninteresting and unengaging sort of evil for me. I hate it, but yeah. you know you have to do it and it's part of the game but I'm all for picking a couple that you're decent at and leaving the rest the idea that I could have nine fully functioning social platforms that I'm updating on a minute by minute basis Snapchat I've completely left to the kids they can have that Instagram I barely use it it's just that I like the filters so I'll put it (laughs) I'll put a photo through a filter and then put that photo on Twitter I've decided all I can handle is Facebook and Twitter and that is the that is me done. The thing about the technology, though, is it's superseding what we do, and not just for on air, but I mean, in terms of the print media, but also, I guess, in terms of journalism as well. Now, anybody can be a journalist. You know, it, the reason why stories were broken and were so important, the journalism is so important, is because it's people that have 
worked as journalists for years and years and have the background of the story and can present the facts that have been researched as opposed to somebody tweeting out uh, something that they've seen as gospel and then yeah. the rest of the world taking that as gospel. And I think that's a dangerous thing about social media is it's a toy. It's not reality. Or if, it's, it, if it is reality, it's an unproven reality. Has it changed the way you interact with your audience at all no. or do you just keep it old school, it's phones and it's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got, you know, Sam does the tweeting for me and tweets stuff out. But that's not how you engage with your no, audience. No, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I really don't need to tell everybody about my life on Facebook because I, Facebook because I got a radio show. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> and that's, that's very not, true. And not that I'm going to go on, you know, and tell everybody about my private life on the radio show because I'm also of the old school of, mm, there's only so much sharing and yeah. crying that you want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, let's play it. <laughs> Another record. Here you yeah. go. Yeah, you don't need me crying into the microphone yeah. while you're eating dinner. So, do you feel like over the years, because obviously, you know, that's a long, you've had a really long career. Have you felt like you've been in control of that career, or have you felt like you've no. been just going where the wind has taken yeah, you? Yeah, a lot of the time. Yeah. I, I don't know how much of the career you can dictate mm. because you're also at the behest of other people and their change of mind. I think you've just got to, as I said, you've got to adapt and you've got to be the best you can possibly be at what you do and continue to love it. And I think if you love it and you're passionate about it, then you will continue to succeed or at least be able to make money out of it. A lot of people will know you from from the Hot 30 and I remember that as a teenager as being a really, really big show Mm. and it's one of those things where I'm interested to know as working on it whether it just felt the same as sort of every other show you do and whether that's you know when you go back to your school and you go into the gym hall and you go oh my goodness this room is tiny and I thought it was massive Mm. I'm wondering whether it's that sort of when you're a kid everything seems so big and Mm. you know because you talk to producers outside it seemed like you had all of these people working you had big prizes to give away Mm. and you had rock stars coming in and was it really just another show? It was for me because I loved doing it. I didn't realise until after the fact when I went to the UK um, and then came back and people said, oh, I'm 30, you know, and I run into people now who go, oh, you're the reason I got into radio, yeah. you know, and like, oh, I'm 35 now. Yeah, <laughs> and I was yeah. 10 when I listened to you because I'm 190 <laughs> years old. But um, at the time, no, it didn't feel like it was that great. It was just fun. It was fun to do. You know, we had a great interaction with the audience. Mm. We had the opportunity, because we were a national show, to get these great prizes. You know, we got some amazing overseas trips in retrospect, looking back at it now. But it's like anything in life. At that particular time, you're not enjoying it, you know, because none of us ever live in the moment. Mm. And then you look back at ret- in retrospect and go, wow, that was fantastic. Why didn't I love that more? Yeah. But that's like guess that's human nature as well it's also work yeah you know there's uh, this job is spectacular don't get me wrong but you know there is an element when you've done it for so long and think that this becomes your every day yeah you know so it's easy sometimes while there are moments where you go oh wow there it's also easy to just keep doing the job and to not realize until you're out of it oh my goodness that was a really amazing thing i was a part of well yeah exactly and you get paid really really well Mm. but i got to a stage when i got to 37 and you know uh, my mother had just passed away and a few other things had happened and i just i went you know what i don't want to do this anymore Mm. you know and I, i got offered a job in london to go and work there and i just needed to get away uh had i stayed 
in the position that I was in, then maybe, the, you know, I could have gone to the breakfast show. I could be living in a multi-million dollar house right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, but, but we, t- we take our own yeah, path. That's the risk you take, you know. <laughs> so that move was because you got offered a job. Yeah, I, I just, I had had enough. Mm. I was working sometimes seven days a week because we had the TV show as well. There were the interstate sort of appearances that you had to make and I was working non-stop for five years, six to seven days a week and it became all consuming and it was all I did mm. uh, but I just I was just I was worn out I was tired of doing the hot 30 and nasty times and all that <laughs> shit, you know, you know hey, I'm 37 <laughs> years old and you know my uh, you're talking to 13 yeah, year yeah, olds yeah exactly yeah. you know I'm, I'm mates with the guys from Hanson who are 15 yeah. it's like nah I'm just <laughs> yeah. old for this I guess it's easy to look back and sort of say oh what if what if but you know you at that point in time it's not like you thought oh, I'm too big for this and good for this, I'm going to go do something else. It was literally that you, by the sounds of things, just gotten to the end of your yeah, tether. Yeah, I couldn't go anywhere else. And mm. I said, you know, can I, can I do another show? And they said, well, because they were happy with the way the Hot 30 was going. I said, well, you know, we'd rather you stayed on this. And I went, well, okay. So you, had, you hadn't courted that job in London? You'd been No, it just came out it? of, again, it was fate. It just came out of nowhere. You know, like they said, uh, I'd spoken to someone on a boat, a record company boat, who had a job in northeast England in some tiny little town. And the guy, I spoke to the guy, says, look, we haven't got anything, but the guy in London at Kiss FM is a big fan of yours. Would you be interested in doing Drive in London? And I'm like, yeah, okay. That's amazing. Yeah, and I didn't even think about how great it was until, you know, like I was nine, ten months into it and I left it. And again, looking back in retrospect, I'm like, oh, what did I do? What a great job. I so just- was that your choice to leave again? Yeah, I yeah, came back to work at Nova. And then you chose to leave Nova again, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, and went back to the UK. Do you do you have a sticking problem? <laughs> have you met my psychologist? <laughs> do you do you have a problem sticking with things? I think I did, not anymore, but I definitely think I did. Yeah. When you left each of those, like no, I definitely think I did. I did. Yeah. When okay, so when you left Hot Thirty, that you you explained that situation. The when you left London, and what were those? Was it just that you were sort of like, oh, on to the next? I or? think that I was so tired from the Hot Thirty that took such a long time to get that to where it was that I needed a break, and I ended up working this drive show in London at a dance music station. I didn't know anything about dance music at all, and then Nova came up. I was pretty homesick because I had no friends again in sort of London so Mm. the job came up at Nova I came back and I thought immediately as soon as I got back um, we spent the first week getting to know each other in Townsville with Merrick. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Paul Murray might have even been there too. Yeah, he would have been. Um, there, I think. And it was my birthday and I remember I was in Townsville on my birthday and I thought, oh, here I am on my birthday in Townsville on my own yeah, <laughs> and a right. week ago I was in London. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. I-, I always find that that was part of the reason why moving for me and I haven't done it nearly as much as you but moving for me was quite difficult because I found it very lonely. Yeah. Particularly when you're the breakfast talent somewhere, you're working completely opposite ends of the day. It's the same if you're doing drive often or nights as well because, you know, everybody leaves when you're starting your shift mm. or – but because you are isolated in a way being like on-air talent, there is an isolation there. You tend to work in the content team and that's it. But it's not like you walk into an office and everybody hangs out at lunch and you all, you know, you get to know everybody. It can be quite 
a solo experience. Yeah. And it's also quite difficult if you're working different hours from everybody else to have a normal life that means you can find friends and yeah. find a new life. Well, I think also you're constantly being judged as well. That's the other thing yeah. about radio is you're constantly being scrutinised. Not like another job where if you could turn up, do it, and then go home, but, uh, but do a great job, you, you know, you've done well. Mm. You get to keep your job. Here you can be doing the best job you could possibly do, but because of surveys and what have you, you may not have a job at the end of it. Mm. Um, did the London experience, you know, you'd obviously worked on a show that was a big deal here, but was that another level at Kiss in London? We had, yeah. I mean, I think the survey came out, we had like two million listeners, you know, it was crazy. And the guy that was doing breakfast over at Radio One, uh, you know, had 16 million listeners or something. Wow. So, you know, to put things into context, you think you're a fish in a big pond, yeah. right? a big fish in a pond, and then you go to the UK and you realise that it's a whole new world. Yeah. Know? Just to fill in a gap between that time at Hot 30 and Brisbane, how did you hop from that job in Brizzy to getting that national show? Well, I went from, are you talking about the early days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so went, before Hot 30. I went to Brisbane and then I went to 2SM Sydney um, and by then I was about 24 and then the station changed format and it was light and easy or something like that. Oh. It was a complete, and you know, I couldn't get a job on FM um, so I pretty much had to start again and go back through the circuit and work my way back again. You, you went back regionally again. Yeah, I went back to Toowoomba. Oh, my god! <laughs> and then I went back to Brisbane and then I got my way back to, uh, I think, Sydney and then the Gold Coast and Adelaide. You know, it was a veritable smorgasbord of geographical locations. Were there times in that process, I mean, what was the aim for you in your mind did you have one or you were just like I'll go where the wind takes yeah, me I just I want to be so. in radio yeah. yeah exactly so did you feel at some point was was every job that you did oh this I'm doing what I want to do or was there a point where you're like am I ever going to make it to the big leagues oh, I think so but no I still had that self-belief but it wasn't until I got to 30 and I ended up on the Gold Coast that I actually became a decent broadcaster you know before that to be honest I was rubbish what and do you think was the difference I think I became more aware of the fact that I had an ability to do my job well, whereas before that I didn't really have any idea of how the process of not just going on air but dealing with management worked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was probably a difficult employee. I hadn't really matured as a person. And then I got to 30. I started doing the night show on CFM on the Gold Coast. And it just all fell into place. It just became ugly Phil and fate took over. And then, you know, that's where the thing snowballed. So you were at CFM and then there was that move, that would, there was the move to yeah. the show that then became the Hot 30. Yeah, and then I went from there to Canberra. And then I went from there to Adelaide, which was about to turn to Triple M Adelaide. And um, that was really good fun. And the station, we went up six points in one survey. Was your show just locally in Adelaide? Just then? Adelaide, yeah. And yeah, that's right. when it really became obvious that there was something going on. Why um, did you love it so much there? Just because I think the whole ugly Phil Hot 30 thing started to take off. And that's when I you know, realised that, wow, there's actually something going on here. Mm -hmm. and people were ringing me up, offering me jobs, which never, ever happened. Ever. Yeah, right. Um, because of the association I had with people like Guy Dobson and um, Jeff Ellis who were moved to Fox, you know, mm -hmm. they rung me up and said, look, you know, we've got Fox, would you like to come? And I said, yeah, shit, yeah. Fox, again, was another level from Adelaide, which became just a hugely successful radio station, but great fun to work with. And people that I'm still, you know, friends with like Dobbo now to this day, because we were just, we were mates and we were around yeah, and yeah. having a great time doing it. You know, let's do this. 
Let's do that. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, doesn't happen as much in radio anymore. It was just literally, let's throw this at the wall and, and see if it sticks or not. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, Mark Malloy were there. It was a terrific time in radio. I, I think that a lot of people in radio think about that time quite fondly. Mm. And certainly when I first started, Dobbo was a bit of a myth. You mm. know, I, I worked in Melbourne and he was this guy in Sydney that very much had that reputation for being the type of person where you could come in and say, we want a donkey to come in and shit all over the panel. And he'd be like, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> what kind of donkey is it going to be, mate? <laughs> yeah. So that kind of reckless abandon that yeah. I think as a creative person is what you desperately wish for. And, and there are – do you feel like – I know that the industry has changed, so I know that the answer to this is yes in some ways. But, but I could guess this be, could be this could be construed as entrapment, Your Honour. <laughs> I think it is. This is leading the witness, okay. uh, is what we say. But I would imagine that that you would feel that the difference is pretty stark between now and then, because there is barely anything you can get away with. Yeah, I think so. But again, you've got to, like I said before, you've got to adapt. The industry mm. has changed, and you've got to adapt with it. It's no point pining. For, yeah, you know the days of yore because those days are over. Why so. do you think you were uniquely placed to be good at this job? I guess I had no other choice. It was this or nothing. I couldn't do carpentry. I even thought about this when I was on the train to the Gold Coast uh, to Gosford when that was my fallback, which we haven't got to yet. I'm sure you want to come. <laughs> I remember thinking, you know, what else can I do? I can't do carpentry. We've all thought that yeah. <laughs> at some point. There is not a person in this business who has not at one point gone, what else can I do? What else can I do? You know, I be- have no choice. This yeah. is it. I've got to be good at this. Are you referring to the time that you went to work on Star? Yeah, Star FM, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, at one stage I was, um, and this was after I was fired at Triple M, and I went to Perth and that was a disaster. A lot of that because of my own doing. Um, and I got the train to, to Gosford every day, which was great in terms of, you know, I had the opportunity to work. But also one minute I'm on the plane first class to interview Madonna in L.A. Mm. And now I'm taking the daily train to Gosford from yeah. Sydney. So, you know, there comes moments where you go, how has this happened? Whose fault is this? And then the stark realisation, this is nobody's fault but mine. And, what? you know, I've got to fix this situation or... This is going to be my future. And again, not, not taking anything away from that situation because I made some really good friends in Gosford, but, you know, I still wanted to work in cap, Capital City Radio. I still kind of wanted to be a celebrity, you know, of some, some form. But I think it's that realisation that you've got to have when you look in the mirror and you see yourself looking back and you go, I've got to fix this situation because this is of my own doing. What did you think it was that did it? Just my attitude, you know. Just, you seem like an entirely different person from that time. Well, uh, you know, it's when everybody, when you're living in a sycophantic situation where everybody goes, oh, you're great. And then all of a sudden, you know, and this will happen to anybody who's on top when all of a sudden you don't have the show that you used to have or the hit singles or the movie career. You know, people in the real world don't want to know you anymore. Mm. And when you get to that stage where you've been living in the past and you look at yourself and you go, now I'm actually now all I've got mm-hmm. and I've got a fix what I have I want to be a gr- I want to be a really good person above and beyond anything else that's a stark realization that a lot of people don't have and it's quite confronting too yeah and you've got to lose a lot to get there yeah of course you got to lose everything yeah, to get there. I and mean, when you've lost it and you know that's also really important to maintain your hunger 
Yeah. Um, is you've got to have nothing. But there's a lot of people that go through that but have burned so many bridges they don't get another chance. Yeah. Well, I'd burnt every bridge yeah. by that stage. You know. I remember when you left here and you were so angry. I was furious. And, I mean, even my best friends, people like Guy Dobson, wouldn't return my call because mm. I just wasn't somebody that you'd want to talk to. And, again, until you come to the realisation that I've got to fix this shit. I've got to make myself a better person. Uh, you know, I've got to be the person that I know I can be, but also the person that I want to be. If you can't come to that realisation, then you'll be that guy that's on the radio forums <laughs> going, <laughs> everything's shit now, but back in my day, <laughs> yeah. you know. So obviously that process of change takes time. Did you have any time out where you weren't working at all? Where you sort no, of, no? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, you know, worked at Mix FM, um, when it was mixed and weekends after Gosford. But, uh, you know, I've always been able to work, which is great. Mm. You know, I've always been able to get a job somewhere doing something. But also you get to a stage where you think, oh, Christ, you know, I've got to dig myself out of this. I can't just do weekends on a radio station and, you know, pay the rent. So then did you have to put in the calls to the old mates to apologise? I had to do, yeah. It's, you know, the 12-step program of yeah. getting a job back. But <laughs> yeah. do it with do it in earnest, but do it, you know, sincerely. Yeah. Don't just say what people want you to hear because you'll eventually get found out and eventually people will go, oh, this is just, you're doing this just to, you know, survive. Did it take much work or were people pretty responsive to your change when you got in touch? I had to look in a lot of people's eyes mm. to make sure that I was, you know, being honest. Yeah. But... Again, you know, if you want to have longevity, this could happen to anybody and anybody's career, especially in radio, you know, or in the entertainment industry. You're no longer in favour. If you want to get back in favour, if you want to keep working, then you've got to make some internal changes. That must make working now here all the sweeter. Yeah. Well, life's good now, you know. I'm happy. Yeah, which makes a huge difference. I cannot tell you how different you seem no, as a good. person. Like you. Well, I'm sober for a start. <laughs> Christ, what are you trying start. to say, Rachel? Before this, you didn't think I was very much of a person. No, That's what you're not at to all. Say. Not at all. But when, when you left here, I, re- I just remember you were so angry. When you say left, what you mean is when you were fired from here. When you were fired from here. <laughs> I remember going into the meeting and I had a really sore back and I think it was quicker to fire me than it was for me to sit down. Yeah. You know, I was like... Oh, you're serious? Yeah. You know, I've, got a, I've got a bad back. Can I sit down? For, no, don't bother sitting down. Mm. You know. But, you know, you, you realise in this, in this game that you, you can't take things personally. No. Uh, and you have to realise that uh, everything, this happens to everybody yeah, yeah. and you just have to pull your socks up and go and f- either focus on something else or, you know, and decide how you're going to approach a business that is Pretty unsupportive at times. Well, it's a business. Yeah. But you're also an architect of your own future in anything that you do in the world. And you've got to be a good person. You've got to have, you know, the right heart. That's how life takes care of you and the universe takes care of you. Oh, and it sounds, I know it sounds very sort of... Praise Jesus! Know, yeah, exactly. Hallelujah. <laughs> but it, I mean, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but it's true. It's you know, so true. The best people that you meet are they, and the most successful people that you meet are nice people who don't other people over. Yeah. And don't themselves over. Yeah. yeah. And the problem is that I think everybody's career at some point will stall mm. or something will happen. And at that point, you need to be able to turn around to the people around you and see that they are rooting for you. Yeah, of course. And not thinking 
this is what you deserve. Well, I never screwed anybody over. That yeah. was the good thing about the journey as well. Mm. That, you know, I never did anybody any harm except for myself. But, you know, and the other thing is, of course, that I've learned is that everything comes around. Mm. That if you think, oh, I'm Teflon, nothing's ever going to touch me. I'm sorry. Oh, you're screwed. Everything comes back. Yeah. So, you know, that's the only given I can guarantee in life. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about this business? Yeah, I wouldn't want to look at the worst thing. Surely like one worst thing would be the lack well, of... probably getting fired, yeah, you know. The, like, the lack of stability yeah. in the sense that, okay, it is part of the business, but, geez, it would be great if you could just do the job you love forever yeah, and course. you never lost yeah, it. Yeah, of course. But then again, you know, the onus is on you, as I said before, to adapt. Mm. So in terms of... I don't know, that's not really answering your question, but... Hey, it'll you know. do. Yeah. It'll do. You've given me so much so far. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the best thing? Oh, it's just fun. You know, when you're on the air and you're playing records and people ringing up and they go oh i just love that you know like the other day i played tiny dancer and elton john and i just loved it and i said i'm loving this song and you know some and it's again this is almost sound like one of them 70s djs i'm loving this one and you're gonna love it too cats and kids (laughs) but people ring up and go oh man that's great you know you've actually given something to somebody and made them happy yeah that's the great thing about the job it's also good for you to be at a place like Triple M where you clearly enjoy the music because a lot of our job is often to yeah. pump up the music that we have absolutely yeah. no interest in. Yeah, that's it. Oh, what a great track by, as you said before, I think Ariane Grande. Grande. Did I say that right? I don't know. <laughs> no, you got it totally wrong. <laughs> I kind of looked in your eyes to see whether that was right. I didn't see a flicker of anything. I was going to say Iggy Azaglia, but I didn't go there. <laughs> I was trying to get it as wrong yeah. as you did, but I don't think I quite got that. <laughs> I guess my gig at Kiss. That's it, yeah. But but we've all been in that situation. You know, I yeah. remember uh, similarly. I was I I hosted the later version of the Hot Thirty just briefly with Sam Mack, um, and I was kind of approaching thirty, so I, w- I wasn't um, as old as you at the time. But even then, I thought to myself. I can't sell this music. I'm very much a cynical person. That's my natural kind yeah. of humour. And I just couldn't get up there to that sort of level that you needed to. And it, sometimes a job requires a little bit of acting, you know. So it's good to be doing a show where you go, I don't have to lie. Yeah. Well, the good thing too is that you've got to, you know, what, what I've always been able to do is adapt to other situations. I mean, I read 2CH News in the mid-dawns once for you know a gig and I've worked talk back on 2UE um, uh, you know so I've done all different formats but you know like you say it gets to a stage where if it's not fun and you're bullshitting yourself then there's no point yeah um, and if you hate yourself for doing it but the good thing about the rock music format is having worked in the UK for dance music and you know I worked at, at mix when it was mixed before it was Kiss playing Taylor Swift it's not for me mm. and if you know the music and the format's not for you eventually one of the two have to give. How did you go as a newsreader? Because I also had to pop in and do news for the grill team here for a short period when there was a sort of question about where the hell they were going to put me at Triple M. <laughs> uh, and I sucked at it. I sucked so bad. I remember every day Jamie Angel used to come in and say to me, where do you go when you read the news? Because <laughs> I, he was like, we just want you to be you. 
Yeah. Just be you. Like, like don't don't put on the newsreader voice and every single time I swore to God I was being me, yeah. but I must have been putting on the newsreader. I just could not get it down no matter how hard I tried. Yeah. Were you any good at it? I sucked. I, I think even while I was doing it, I was thinking two things. Gee, this is going to pay for dinner tonight. You know, like any format that you're working <laughs> yeah. that you're not comfortable in. And second, uh, gee, I hope uh, Fitzy or Dobbo are going to return my call soon. Yeah, totally. Know. Get me out of yeah. here. I, I, I have nothing but respect for um, news professionals mm. who are able to deliver the news in a way that doesn't sound too newsy. I have no idea. Uh, Sas- Sasha Tannock works here. She yeah. does an amazing job of it. And she, bless her heart, when I was trying to be a newsreader, was doing her very best to mentor me and mm. give me all of the tips and it just did absolutely nothing. That was a small part of my career that I would be happy to forget, Phil. I remember a time when I was at LBC in London and I was doing a show, and this is getting way out of your depth, mm. uh, and I had to, they uh, were very strict about the quarter hour placement of everything. And I remember I had nothing left, and it was 11.14, and maybe 10 seconds. And I was looking at the producer, and he had nothing in the, in studio, in the studio, just a box with a microphone, that was it. So no records. I mean, I'd given the fax number, I'd given the email number, I'd given the text. Mm. I wasn't ready to move on to the next thing. I had absolutely nothing. Looking at the guy horrified through the, the window, the mm. producer going, <laughs> oh. and then they'd get stretch, stretch, 45. I don't know what I did from that 45 seconds to the, you know, the end of that particular quarter pass I'm t- it's still a blank now but I had nothing oh, and I was absolutely petrified and this is in London for Christ's yeah. sake at a very prestigious talkback radio station mm. so there is no worse feeling mm. than that feeling and it's you know it doesn't matter how many years you've done the job for sometimes you can still get when you're having a chat with a co-host in the studio you'll be listening to them and and those little ideas will fire and you'll be like right got something got something and then ever so every so often you'll have a moment where you're thinking this person's wrapping up their story and mm. nothing is firing in my head and I don't know what do you what? think Rachel <laughs> yeah. oh. I think it's time for a song yeah yeah 20 past and the text number is that's it so we are down to the final five questions for the show uh, the first what's your favourite biscuit <laughs> yes it's just going to be all non-radio yeah, yeah, yeah. related who questions who do you prefer more Fisher or Pikel <laughs> what is your biggest regret I don't like to, again, without sounding cheesy, I don't like to live in regret because there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, there have been regrets that I can bring up and there are a lot of those, you know. Um, I've been broke, so broke that I was buying my underwear from the reject shop and that that wasn't that long ago. So wow. I regret, one of the regrets is, oh, I should have put my money in the bank. I should have bought a house. I should have stayed on the hot 30 a little bit longer. Gee, I should have stayed in London a little bit longer. I probably could have, could have stayed at Nova a little bit longer. I should have taken that job at 2UE. Uh, I could go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But don't you find that that moment while at the time would have been terrifying, when you come out of that on the other side, it's actually great because you will never be stupid with your money again. Yeah. It's sure it would have been great to have that realization 30 mm. years ago. Yep. But at the same time, I think that sort of desperation that can happen at the end of a contract. And I certainly had it happen to me at when a contract ended uh, unexpectedly. And I was honestly grabbing for whatever driftwood would like, I yeah. would have done anything. I would have cleaned the toilets, yeah. um, uh, you know, to keep my head above water. And when I did that, the next contract, contract that I that I managed to jump onto 
man, oh man, was I squirrelling stuff away because I thought if this ends, which it, in, which it inevitably yeah. will and did, yeah. then I'll pop out the end of this just fine. You will. You always survive. You mm. always survive, even the worst situation. But as long as you don't also live in fear, you know, you don't be that guy that's got nothing to lose, but also don't be the person that's so paranoid and living in fear that, you know, your next paycheck may not be coming because mm. that's no way to live. But there is a level of confidence, I think, that is essential to being an on-air personality. But at the same thing, those kind of experiences make you so much more able to connect with your audience. I of think. course, absolutely. And it changes you and the way that you present and the way that you tell stories. And I think that that really resonates with an audience. Yeah, well, they can tell if you're bullshitting. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, I, I was at the shop the other day and I had to buy a pint of milk for $5. You know, like, mm. no, that's not how much it costs, mate. You obviously <laughs> don't go to the supermarket. <laughs> yeah, you get you know? somebody yeah. you've employed to yeah. do it for and, you. And our listeners are, you know, no one's making a lot of money. You mm. know, if you want to relate to the audience, you've got to be living in the same place they do. Mm. And, you know, most of us are living in some form of poverty. Do, is there a big idea? I often ask this of radio, the people I have that work in radio, a big idea that you had that never got up. You know, I, I kind of have crazy ideas. The good thing about doing shows like The Rubber Room and Hot 30 is you can actually, you know, put them to actuality. Actually, that's know. really true from the shows that you do because yeah. there's barely anything that you would dream up that you yeah. wouldn't just be able to put on. Is there anything you, you think, God, that's just the damn craziest thing I've ever done? You know, I was only thinking about this the other day because I talked to Chris from The Chaser a lot um, and, you know, we often talk about politics and stuff like that and they're really smart guys and I really admire really clever people, mm. really clever and, you know, like smart people. Uh, you know, they're great to have conversations with and you just take so much away. And I thought, you know, the other day I was going to tell them about the show I had because I hate dumb broadcasting. I hate it. It's lazy. Mm. And when you've got Google Box and whatever the thing's called, Google Box. And, <laughs> I love it. You, you know, are like my dad. You get the yeah, name of yeah, everything, everything wrong. wrong. That's it. You know, like and that <laughs> other one, you know, my favourite kitchen mother, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, married <laughs> and divorced at first sight. I, it's just that we've dumbed down the industry so badly now yeah. that I think, you know, what I, I'd like to do is come up with the idea of the dumbest TV show you could ever come up with that's so dumb that's worse than Gogglebox, mm-hmm. that it's lower than the lowest common denominator, embarrassingly, terribly feeble, and put it on TV to see how it rates. Do you know, it, I reckon it would go gangbusters. Because it would rate, exactly. It's like the Truman Show meets another one of those reality because ideas. Because Gogglebox, when that came out as an idea, I remember writing an article for the paper that was like, we have officially jumped the shark, it is all over. Yeah. If we are watching people watch television, that thing rates its tits off. Yeah, well, let's see how far down we can go. Yeah, but <laughs> honestly, we've had sex in a box where a couple yeah, yeah. get into a box yeah, and yeah. have sex on stage. We have embarrassing bodies where people, for some reason, walk into a thing and say, you know what I would like to do on national television is show people that I have a problem with my vagina. Yeah. You know, like, we have honestly scraped the bottom we've dug right through and we're in China and this shit is still raiding well that's where I want to go I want (laughs) to see how far down we I mean like just purely for you know to be subjective to find out how what people will actually put up with and then to go crikey I'm the Simon Cowell of the worst TV idea ever. (laughs) And Jesus, out of my 37 years in radio, I've just made a million dollars in 10 minutes. Yeah, you would be surprised. It's probably the easiest way to make a quick buck is by coming up with a shitty idea. Let's workshop this because I don't know what idea it is, but you just think (laughs) of the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest thing you can think of and then go down another 10 
yep. notches. And you, it will rate. Yep. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Uh, well, I can't be a carpenter. I can't do Why metal can't work. you yeah, be a carpenter? I, I can't do anything. I can't even have a screwdriver. I I'm really am rubbish. I really cannot do anything. Is there nothing else that you're skilled for? You don't like to write or... Well, is there a job for somebody that can intro records and tell the weather and time? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm doing it, you know. No, but I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to be... I wanted to do law when I was younger. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll become a politician. You didn't go to university? <laughs> no, you just got straight into radio. I just barely yeah, got, yeah. barely left school. Yeah. yeah. But I wonder whether that's just because you've been doing this job for so long. Because I remember when my last contract finished and obviously you go, okay, I'm off to see the world now and do mm. work out what I'm going to do. And that, that moment where you go, okay, I'm out on my own now, it takes a hot second for your brain to calibrate what else can I do mm. but talk into a microphone? And the reality is that you can do a lot. It's just that when you're in the job and that's what you've been doing, yeah. you see those skills as so, you know, your zone of focus is so minute. Yeah, exactly. Your universe is. Yeah, yeah exactly. you think this is all I can do. But then you realise actually you come up with ideas every day. You're a creative person. Yeah. You could do something in creative. You know, it's very – but it's very hard when you're doing this job to think, is there anything else I could do? Yeah, which is what's difficult. A, what's the uh, mother? The, uh, oh, um, I know what you're saying. Invention, invention necessity. necessity. Mother yeah. of invention, whatever that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's great. Exp- but uh, if Donald Trump can become president of the USA, then, oh, well, you, you know, can be bloody I, anything. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> and I mean, politics would be very interesting, but it would be have to be done from um, a standpoint of integrity mm. and for a reason. Mm. Not because I want to be Prime Minister, yeah, you know, yeah. but because I want to help people. Mm. I want to help people who are disenfranchised. I mean, so something like that would be great, you know, where people really don't have the voice that politics should have given them because, you know, the whole idea of politics has become so watered down now mm. that you have people in charge who really don't, I think, do it for the right reason. They don't yeah. do it because they want to be civil servants helping people out. Um, and so something like that, you know, maybe... Well, you're right. Donald Trump really is the the poster child for anyone. Anyone, who can do yeah, this. yeah. And that also means that you know, if you've got skeletons in your closet, well, that's cool. Yeah, it'll only add to <laughs> yeah, your that's right. uh, to my allure, to your popularity. Yeah, that's, right. that's it. Final question is your advice for people wanting to get into the business. Keep doing it. Keep doing what you want to do. Believe in yourself. Never, ever, ever let anybody tell you you can't do it. But also do it with the realization that you know you may not be. Make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Don't do it for celebrity. Do it because you want to enjoy being on the radio. Because it's great fun. It's a terrific job. Mm. It's really, really good fun. But for the right reasons. Phil, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That has been a bloody delight talking do to I you. Do I pay you now for this <laughs> therapy session? <laughs> I should have gotten you to do the whole thing lying down on this couch. Yeah. <laughs> we could have made it a real therapy session. I really appreciate it so much. No, and, thank you. Uh, give a little plug for your show for people that... Uh, Two shows. Um, 12 to 4 on Triple M and don't forget my generation. Oh, yes. And my new TV show, How Deep Is Your Bow? <laughs> And make sure you vote for me, kids, because we can do it together and make Australia great again. (laughs) Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com.
Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Ugly Phil. It's clear that he has been through some serious ups and downs, but surviving that many decades in this business is no mean feat. Next week on the show, I have another radio survivor, Brendan Jonesy-Jones, one half of the Jonesy and Amanda Breakfast Show on WSFM in Sydney. These two have been on the airways for many years. They are also a duo that I have never heard anybody speak a bad word about in the business. And believe me, that doesn't happen very often. Jonesy shares a lot about his time working in regional radio, moving up to Triple M during the 1990s in the glory days when it was a lot of drugs and musos hanging around the halls. And he shares a story about the time he managed to punk the Kyle and Jackie O show. I found a bunch of my old audition tapes and we sent them out to all the radio stations in Sydney. Just Brendan hoping to get into radio. So we got responses from Alan Jones. Alan Jones was like, oh, you, you know, you could need a little bit of work. John Laws pretty much said, you shit house. <laughs> pretty much. Straight down the line. No response from Two Day or Triple M or anything like that. Then about six months later, my mum rings and says, I've been listening to Kyle and Jackie O. They're playing one of your tapes on air. And then Kyle's going, oh, I'm going to have a listen, have a listen to this guy. And then it's me doing community radio, sounding absolutely terrible. So we rang up. I rang up today yeah. and I said did uh, they know it was you had they picked no it they didn't you? pick it was me it's because I just said this Brendan it didn't say Brendan Jones it just had Brendan and so I rang up today the producer uh, Gemma and I said oh hi, it's Brendan um yeah you guys mum was saying that you were playing my tape the other day and she goes yes yes we were well anyway thank you um I've actually got a job and she goes have you really oh, can we talk to you on the radio tomorrow I went Sure, sure. I said, I'll give you – and I couldn't give the studio hotline number. Oh, yeah. So I gave uh, like another number that we set up in the studio and they, and they said, we'll give you a call. I'm not too sure uh, what's good for you. And I go, well, I've got to take mum. Mum takes me on the bus between 7.30 and 8. Okay, we'll call you between 7.30 and 8. So we recorded the half hour of our show. Oh. Like, actually risked the half hour of our show. And we'd just gone number one yeah. as well over Kyle and Jackie O. So we, I record, we recorded that half hour and did an interview in there and some stuff and we just sat there waiting for the phone to call. And it was getting to about 10 to 8. Then it rings. Oh, uh, hello. Yeah, it's Kyle and Jackie O. Who's that? And I said, oh, it's Brendan. And he goes, oh, well, yeah, mate, um, listen, listen, what were you thinking with that tape? Um, well, I, I'd just like to say that um, thank you. Since you guys put it on air, I've now got a, I've got a job. And he goes, oh, well, what loser station with that? I said, might it be Jonesy and Amanda at WSFM and we just kicked your ass in the ratings. <laughs> I hope you'll join me next week for that chat. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to the program. Big shout out to Reverend B Daddy, not only for the five-star review, but also for choosing an excellent name, Rama497 and Model101 for your comments and your reviews. I really appreciate it. Uh, it helps other people find the show and when they find it, to realise it's not a pile of shit, which is always helpful. I hope to see you back in your ears next week. See you then.